Good morning, Redemption. Why are sunsets beautiful? What is it about that moment when day and night collide that draws us out of the woodwork to gaze upon the radiant splendor? Now, sure, we can scientifically dissect it. Light rays on sojourn from the sun ricochet through our atmosphere until reaching our retina. But to reduce it like this is to ravage it, to miss out on the glory of what is happening. I want to introduce you today to an ancient vision, more poetic in nature, a more romantic vision of nature. See, the reason sunsets are beautiful, God says, is the same reason that sex is sacred. That it is the moment when the two become one, when day and night bring their diversity into union. Today we are looking at uh, talking about sex, and so we're going to be in Genesis one. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, um, the reason that we are looking at sex today is because we're in a series called Countercultural Convictions, where each week we're taking different topics and going, how do we live faithfully to Jesus in areas that run against the grain of our cultural moment? I would imagine for many of you, if we talk about a countercultural vision of sex, why Christianity's vision is countercultural, uh, your mind probably first goes to like the restrictions and the prohibitions, like the things that you're not allowed to do. But I want to suggest to you actually that the reason Christianity's vision for sex is so countercultural is actually because it is sacred and designed to point to greater things. It's actually so much bigger and more beautiful than anything else our culture has on offer. Sex is designed by God to point to greater things. The first thing we want to look at today that it's designed to point to is the structure of creation. The structure of creation. Sex is a window into the structure of creation. In Genesis 1, we'll go back to the beginning. Literally the very beginning of the biblical story. Genesis 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So God creates heaven and earth as a complementary pair made with and for one another. And before male and female step onto the scene, before God makes man and woman, he makes heaven and earth, this complementary pair, and heaven and earth are not alone. We find as Genesis 1 is actually structured by three complementary pairs made with and for one another. We have heaven and earth, land and sea, and night and day. So heaven and earth frame the vertical dimension up and down, while land and sea frame the horizontal dimension side to side, and night and day frame the temporal dimension of time. And what is powerful to recognize is the most beautiful places in creation are where these two become one. Let's start with land and sea. It's on day three. God makes the land and the sea. Uh, the book of Job, Job envisions God uh, telling the sea, hey, this far you can come and no further, fixing as he fixes limits for the sea and lays the earth's foundation. So God separates uh, land and sea and yet brings them together. And while land is great on its own and sea is great on its own, there's something majestic when they merge. There's just something about the beach. Philosopher Peter Kreeft, he puts it this way. He observes that the shore is the most popular place on earth. 
Waterfront property is the most expensive property anywhere in the world because that's where the sea and the land meet. That's where man and woman meet. The land without the sea is kind of boring, desert. We've got a lot of that here in Arizona. (laughs) The sea without the land is kind of boring. When are we going to land the ship? But the place where they meet, that's where all the action is, and that's where we want to be. Kreeft is hitting on something significant here. The beach, we love the beach. Its aesthetic is magnetic. We will shell out top dollar for the oceanfront view, whether we're talking about the sun-kissed beaches of California or the rocky shores of Ireland or the resort beaches in Thailand. There's just something about the beach. And yet this magic works on smaller scales too, Uh, The beach and coast, that's simply where uh, the largest version, where we've got oceanic bodies of water tangling with tectonic plates of continents. And yet if we zoom in on smaller scales, we find that cities spring up along rivers. Cabins are built next to lakes. Oases sprout in the desert. Because where soil and water come together, life can emerge and thrive. It's not only a place where life can emerge, but also a place where beauty is formed. When river and rock caress, there is a unique type of beauty that is formed and made. Think about what are waterfalls but water traversing rock? What is the Grand Canyon but rock carved out by water? A friend of mine, Brett McCracken, observes that, man, whether we're, that nature One of nature's most beautiful artistic pairings is river and rock. And that water is able to uh, guide and mold and shape and carve rock, and rock is able to contain and filter and guide water. And together they form one of nature's most beautiful artistic pairings. Whether we are talking about snow-capped mountains or geysers or glaciers or cascades, these are the places where tourists flock. Painters love to come, that we love to gaze at the beauty that's formed in these places. It's a big picture. We see here that land and sea are a complementary pair. They're made with and for one another. And when they come together, when the two become one, it's a holy space where beauty is formed and life can emerge. Let's now move to our second pair, night and day. These are formed on day one of creation. So God separates the night and the day. And um, and they are like another power combo here in Genesis 1, right? Where on the one hand, night is great on its own. There's something about just sleeping under a blanket of stars. On the other hand, there's something majestic about daytime. Most of life happens under the sun. And yet, something mesmerizing happens when they merge. There's just something about sunset, the Our whole neighborhood tends to come out at sunset. Uh, We live near Window Rock in Papago Park. And uh, if if I go out there during the day, like I find there's virtually nobody around. It's usually empty. Or if I come back late at night in the dark, there's usually no one around. But if you go out there at sunset, it's like the whole neighborhood came out. Like hundreds of people to gaze upon this moment of sunset. And there's a good reason. It's glorious. The splendor of sunset is glorious. This is the moment when a sphere of energizing light, like it penetrates the border of the horizon, 
and sinks into the womb of darkness. And there's a volcanic eruption of colors exploding across the sky, like sparks of euphoria flying from lovers in ecstatic embrace. It's glorious. Now, the point here is not to sexualize creation so much as it is rather to creationize sex, to say that sex fits within a structure of creation that God has made of these covenantal pairs bound with and for one another permanently that bring beauty and life to the world. Shakespeare saw the romance in Sunrise. In Romeo and Juliet and the famous balcony scene, this is perhaps one of the most classic love scenes in all of literature. In Romeo, uh, Shakespeare sets the scene against sunrise where Romeo in the darkness, he sees the appearance of Juliet and famously proclaims uh, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet is the sun. The master playwright, he identifies Romeo with the night as uh, he has to hide in the anonymity of darkness to keep the, his love a secret. And Juliet with the day whose light outshines the lesser lunar light of Rosalind, who's identified with the moon. But in this famous scene, as they come together and declare and profess their love for one another and their intention to enter into covenant together and share life together forever, the master playwright sets the scene against sunrise. And the timing is appropriate, for this is the moment when the two become one. All right, well, let's move to our final, third and final pair, <clears throat> heaven and earth. So God creates, once again, heaven and earth, and it is uh, significant to me that God doesn't create earth above and earth below. That would be like a cave, right? Like a place of darkness, not much light. And God doesn't create heaven above and heaven below, right? That would be like, ah, like we'd all be fallen and no ground beneath our feet. Gravity would be an enemy, right? Uh, But no, God creates heaven and earth together with and for one another to bring structure and life to the world. And the place where heaven and earth come together is the mountaintop, right? The mountaintop. Significant that ancient peoples looked to the mountaintop as sacred space, a space where heaven and earth connected. And we find this in the Bible as well, in a string of moments where uh, we find in Scripture that Jerusalem sits atop Mount Zion, that Moses and Israel meet God on Mount Sinai, The prophet Elijah calls down fire on Mount Carmel. Jesus is transformed radiant before his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Garden of Eden, we're told, rests atop the mountain of God. The holiest encounters with God occur on the mountaintop. The heights are like Jimi Hendrix, right? They love to kiss the sky. This is the place where heaven and earth touch and connect. And we still love the mountaintop today. This photo is of Mount Hood. I grew up in the shadow of Mount Hood, which is cast for hundreds of miles around. And this was a place like other mountaintops where climbers love to ascend to the peak and the type of place that we love to go for retreats. We'll still talk about the mountaintop experience. We're able to uh, get perspective and clarity from kind of the ins and outs of life in our everyday world. The mountaintop is sacred space. And yet in the Bible, earth and heaven speak to more than just soil and ozone. 
to become metaphors or representatives for God's space and for our space. So when Jesus teaches us as his followers to pray the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, where he says, God, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is teaching us to pray for the union of heaven and earth, for the collision of God's sphere with ours, for the merger of creator and creation. And when this happens, when heaven breaks into earth, when the divine presence penetrates the reality of our earthly existence, what we find is that it is holy space where beauty is formed and new life emerges into the world. This holy space where the king is united with his bride. So, what does this have to do with sex? Well, everything. (laughs) Uh, The creator saves the best for last. The climax of Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, 27, we find that God creates humanity in his own image. And so it climaxes the passage in this poem where uh, it says that God created uh, mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. We find that man and woman, male and female, are a fourth and final complementary pair within this structure of creation. And man and woman together are like a, an iconic window into the structure of the home that we inhabit. They display the divine design of the architecture of the world that we live in. Together, we are like a pint-sized portrait of heaven and earth. The acclaimed theologian, N.T. Wright, he puts it this way. He says, uh, the man, he's talking about Genesis 1 here, saying, the man and the woman together are a symbol of something which is profoundly true of creation as a whole. The coming together of male and female is itself a signpost pointing to that great complementarity of God's God's whole creation, of heaven and earth belonging together. What he's saying here, sex is designed to point to something greater, the union that we were made for with God the reality of heaven and earth coming together that God has designed us for, and the structure of creation, these complementary pairs bound together in covenant, like in permanence, that form and fashion the life of the world that we inhabit. And this is countercultural because in a culture that says sex is just about personal pleasure and anything else is kind of an optional add-on, the gospel says, no, sex is actually designed to point to greater realities. And these Greater realities load sex with transcendence and meaning and suggest that sex is sacred, something that we are to approach with reverence before God as holy ground. There is a countercultural reality for us as the church that we hold sex as something sacred that speaks to realities greater than ourselves. Sex is a sign of diversity in union. My next main point of the morning here is that sex is a sign of diversity and union, the diversity of heaven and earth, of land and sea, of night and day, but also a lot more uh, realities of diversity and union that we find in the gospel. If you were to ask me, what is the greatest hope the gospel brings to the world? I just might tell you diversity in union. And here's what I mean. If you go to the end of the biblical story, we're here at the beginning in Genesis 1, but if you go all the way to the end of the biblical story, Revelation 21 and 22, uh, what we find at the end is a wedding feast where uh, God, God is being united with his people. Now, weddings celebrate union, and this wedding is no different. 
The wedding feast at the end of history, we see that it is the union of heaven and earth as God's dwelling comes down to dwell with humanity and live with us forever. We see that it is the union of east and west as the nations come streaming into God's holy city to feast and celebrate and rejoice with him forever. We see that it is the union of weak and strong as God wipes away the tears from the eyes of the suffering and the kings bring their glory to the feet of Jesus. And we see that it is the union of good folks and bad folks who are there by nothing but grace alone, covered by the blood of the lamb and rejoicing in the grace that makes us his kingdom. The hope of the world is diversity in union. And at the center of this picture is that of a wedding between God and his people. God loves taking the two and making them one. And I believe that is because God is diversity in union. The heart of the gospel, the Christian understanding of God is that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, an eternal communion of love. That God has both distinct persons and oneness, unity, one being as Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity, it's not not just some weird math equation, but rather it is a wondrous proclamation that God is love. That God is love, that we are made relationally by a relational God who holds diversity and union together in the eternal communion of divine love. So God is diversity and union, and Jesus is diversity and union. Part of the greatness of Christ in the gospel is that Jesus takes the greatest of polarities, divinity and humanity, and brings them together in his very person. Jesus is diversity and union. When we are falling into the cavernous chasm of sin and death, Jesus grabs hold like Superman of our humanity and unites it to his chest, incorporating the frailty of our humanity with the incorruptibility of his divinity. He unites us with himself, who is diversity and union. And when we are united to Jesus, Jesus makes us diversity and union, that as the church, as the people of God, we are diversity and union. We are one body with many parts. We are one kingdom with every nation, tribe, and tongue. We are animated by one spirit expressing his presence in our midst through a variety and diversity of gifts. We are diversity. So you see this phrase that speaks to the heart of the gospel and the hope of the world both in creation and salvation, both in who God is and what God does, and in who we become as his people, united in all our diversity together. What we find right on page one of the Bible is that sex, the creation of male and female, that sex is a window into these greater realities. That both our Sex is sacred. Both our sexed identity as male and female and the sexual union of male and female are sacred windows into these greater realities that God has assigned for his world. Now, I would suggest to you that this helps explain some of the restrictions or the prohibitions that we also find in Scripture. Diversity and union helps explain this because Jesus says that divorce violates the union side of the equation. Just as the problem with divorce is that it violates the union side of the equation. We're going to talk about this more on our podcast this week, so we don't have time to go super in-depth. But in short, kind of in summary, in Matthew 19, Jesus gets asked about divorce, his perspective on divorce. And Jesus' response is fascinating because he immediately goes back and he quotes from Genesis. He says, have you not read? And I love that. Jesus is like, don't you guys read your Bibles? (laughs) He goes, have you not read that from the beginning... 
The creator made them male and female. And so for this reason, man, leave his father and mother and, and, be, and the two will become one flesh. And so Jesus is rooting his uh, understanding of marriage and sex and what's, uh, sexual ethics in the structure of creation in Genesis 1. And he goes on to say, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. He's saying the union that God has formed, don't tear apart. Don't render it asunder. It's sacred ground. It's not to be trifled with. It's interesting to me when uh, children talk about divorce. They tend to describe it as if the world is unraveling around them. You know, parents, we can often focus more on the logistics of, you know, coordinating school drop-offs and who gets weekends, who's in the week, those kind of things. But kids tend to speak to something deeper, like Leviathan rumbling beneath the surface. And if what we're talking about here, if Genesis is right, then the kids are right. Because if sex is an icon into the structure of creation, a window into the reality of our world, then what divorce pictures is the breaking apart of heaven and earth, of the covenantal pairs of land and sea separating from one another, of night and day being unhinged and unhooked and creation unraveling into oblivion. On another level, Christ in the church, divorce pictures Christ in the church and a union that breaks. It proclaims that our salvation is unstable. The problem with divorce is it implicitly preaches a false gospel that Christ might abandon or betray or leave his people who he said he will never leave or forsake. Divorce pictures the unraveling of the gospel and of the world. This is one reason why it is sacred ground, why God says we are to treat sex and marriage and family and these realities as holy because they're like iconic windows into these greater sacred realities that hold our world together. Now that said, I recognize that there are some of you in this room where divorce is a part of your story and this does not mean that there's no hope for you if you've been divorced or anything like that, right? Like Jesus is great at restoring cracked and broken image bearers. He's great at restoring. All of us have stuff in our, in our history and our story where we need the power of the gospel. This is also not to say that there are no good reasons to ever get divorced, right? We've talked about some in the past here. There are circumstances where Jesus teaches that divorce is permissible. We'll talk about those more on the podcast this week. Um, and so we, we got to root all this in the reality of the gospel and the bigness of grace. But, uh, but here's the picture, though, the thing I, I would want to leave you with is if you're here, though, today and you are considering divorce, if that's something that you're toying with, I would want you to consider the gravity and seriousness of what you're stepping toward. Because God has invested sex and marriage and family with this divine weight of these things. It's called to image. It's called to bear the image of these things to God's world. And so we need to take that with extreme gravity and holiness. And if you're in that spot, I love Mark sharing some of his story earlier. We want to walk with you. And as John said, we're a community of radical grace. We want to be together in this and process through these things together and learn how we can support each other and walk together rather than feel like we need to carry those things in isolation and hiding. I do believe diversity and union helps explain why, from one angle, some of these things are a problem. If Jesus says that divorce violates the union side of the equation, Paul says that same-sex sexual activity violates the diversity side of the equation. 
We'll talk about this more in the podcast this week as well. Uh, but in short, kind of in summary here, if we go to Romans 1, and what we find in Romans 1, that Paul is describing the impact of sin on humanity, on the fall, and what we find is it impacts everyone and all of us in different ways. It has all these different ramifications. But one thing he draws out uh, in Romans 1 is how he says uh, that men exchange sex with women for sex with men, and women exchange sex with men for sex with women. He says they abandon natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And what Paul is saying is that same-sex sexual activity trades out on the diversity that God has designed in the structure of creation. That it is a picture of anti-diversity, of same with same rather than difference in harmony. And that may sound uh, counterintuitive to us today to talk about that as anti-diversity because when we talk about diversity today, we tend to think, especially in the conversation about sex, as diversity of preferences, right, or desires. And so, Uh, Some people like rap, other people like indie rock, some people like country, right? Diversity of preferences, tastes, and desires. But I suggest to you that what Paul has in mind here in Romans 1 is something deeper, a bodily diversity, what the philosophers might call an ontological diversity, or diversity in our being. Diversity in our being as male and female, as image bearers designed to go together within the structure of creation as a whole. So Josh, are you just saying the problem is just that the parts don't fit? No. What I'm saying is that they're not just parts, That our bodies are sacred and they're designed to be a window into the structure of creation and God's purposes for his world. So part of the problem here becomes that same-sex sexual activity, it's, it's unable to bear witness to the union of heaven and earth. It's a picture of earth with earth or heaven with heaven rather than of heaven with earth. It's unable to bear witness to the union of Christ with his church where we find in the gospel that male and female are like a window into the distinctness of Christ and his church is different yet united and coming together bringing that beauty and life into the world. We find that same-sex sexual activity, it's unable to bear witness to the hope of the world and the wedding feast of the lamb and the kingdom to come where heaven and earth are united forever. And all of this reconciled diversity and union at the heart of God's glorious kingdom. Now, I recognize that for some of you today, this is part of your story that you're hearing. And you're like, man, I, I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this, but I, I've got, I find myself attracted to the same sex. And the first thing you need to know is that God loves you. That you are loved by God. That you have dignity and value and worth. You are worthy of honor and respect. It breaks my heart, some of my LGBT friends, and some of the mistreatment they received from people at large and at times from the hands even of Christians. Called names, one friend kicked out of their home when they were younger, and that is not the way of Christ. And if that's been part of your story, I am sorry. The other thing I would want to encourage you is to say, like, don't live in isolation. As Mark shared in his story earlier, another area, but we need community. We're not meant to live in isolation with, with uh, the things we're struggling with, battling in the shadows. Uh, a number of friends of mine who uh, experienced same-sex sexual attraction and said, I want to live sexually faithful to Jesus, what they have told me is like, I can live without sex, but I can't live without friendship. Right? That we are made to live in community and to walk together and to have our stories known and our struggles known and the things that we're struggling with. And the final thing I say to you is that if you've made mistakes and there's some areas where you go, well, man, you know, I'd say, dude, you're not alone. We're all in the same boat there, right? 
Like when people ask me, Josh, you think homosexuality is a sin? My first response is usually, I think American sexuality is sin. <laughs> like the problem is much bigger. I think same-sex sexual activity, obsessing over that is more like focusing on a leaky faucet on the Titanic, right? <laughs> like, yes, there's water coming in, but we got a breach in the hole and there's all sorts of stuff coming in all over the place, right? Like the gospel speaks against premarital sex. It speaks against adultery. It speaks against pornography and more. And, and I've been a pastor long enough to know that a lot of those realities are here in our history and here in our, our, our story as, as a church community. And so where I want to land the plane today is asking us, what does it look like for us to be a countercultural community? With, with all the different things that we are coming in with, with all the different things we may struggle with, with all our different areas, one level, we're all in the same boat like that. What does it look like for us to be a countercultural community and to hold Jesus high, honor him, worship him with our bodies, how we use them in sexual faithfulness? Uh, and, how, and, and I want to suggest to you this, that we need to hold sex as sacred. We need to hold that sex is sacred. And that sex is sacred because it's designed to point to greater things. In our culture today, this is countercultural because our culture will tend to say sex is primarily about personal pleasure, right? Like, I like you, you like me, so as long as it's consensual, what's the issue? What's the problem, right? And, uh, I, and I think when that becomes it, we'll kind of say today, well, yeah, if, if you want other things, that's great. If you want marriage, if you want kids, you want family, if you, if you want to pursue something, okay, that's, those are optional add-ons, but they're not core. At the end of the day, it's really just about... Um, the consensual fulfillment of desire and pleasure. And I would suggest if that becomes your vision for sex, like it ultimately reduces and ravages the glory of what God's designed it for. I read a quote recently in Rolling Stone magazine. It was an article on the sexual revolution, kind of realities today, the millennial sexual revolution, someone was called. And it was an interview with, a, I think it was 17 years old or so, and he was talking and, and he said, you know, sex has become meaningless. It's like it's essentially become two bodies bouncing up against each other as existentially meaningless as kissing. And my observation was, I think that's the logical thing downstream. When you strip sex from this broader realities, the sacred realities it was designed to portray, it loses its meaning. And so one of the things that for us to be a countercultural community when it comes to sex is we need to lift high a higher vision of sex as sacred and to pursue sexual faithfulness to Jesus. I want to give us here, here three kind of exhortations, three encouragements for how we can hold sex as sacred. The first one is I want to encourage us, we need to move from image keeping, I'm sorry, we need to move from rule keeping to image bearing, right, from rule keeping to image bearing. What I mean by that is sometimes when we think about sexual faithfulness as Christians, or as the church, we can kind of be in a rule-keeping mentality where it's like, I want to keep the rules so that God doesn't get mad because I know I do, you know? And uh, that can lead to legalism and performance and, and, uh, and shame and all these other things. And I'm not saying that there aren't any rules, right? Like Jesus in the New Testament, they speak very clearly about sexual immorality and they warn us there are boundaries and there are grave dangers that can happen when we cross those boundaries. But I am saying that the logic is not just about not crossing the boundary, it's moving in towards the center of the greater realities that sex is designed to represent. So let me give a few examples. Sex and marriage and all, it's designed to represent God's faithfulness. And the problem with adultery is not just that it breaks a rule, it's that it violates the image of God's faithfulness that you're called to bear, right? 
Like God is faithful to his people. He will never abuse or abandon or betray you. He is with you through thick and thin. God is all in, and he, he doesn't just not go out and have an affair. He has this monogamous relationship with his people, right? We have a monogamous relationship with him in which he is faithful to us as his people. And your marriage is called to represent that faithfulness of Christ to his church the faithfulness of God to his people. Do not the faithfulness of the sun and the moon, the night and day to continually be there and present with and for one another. So we need to move from just rule keeping, all right, I I didn't have the affair, to image bearing. I need to represent the faithfulness of God to my spouse. I'd say another example here is uh, when it comes to uh, God's love is covenantal. And so what we find is the problem with premarital sex is it violates the covenantal nature of God's love. God commits to you before he unites with you. God says, I am all in. I am not going anywhere. At the cross, Christ lays down on his life for his church, almost like the proposal saying, I want to be with you through thick and thin and good times and bad and sickness and health. Not even death will be able to separate us. That's how committed I am. And the issue with Premarital sex, it's not just that it breaks a rule, it's that it fails to reflect the covenant love of God. It breaks the image. And so what I love about the gospel is it becomes more motivating and compelling than just how do I not break the rule, but going, how do I image God? And if you're dating right now and you're feeling the temptation, whatever, I would call you like the reality of the call to image God is to go, I'm gonna commit to my spouse before I unite with my spouse. Even if we've messed up, I'm gonna re-up today. We're gonna commit to one another before we unite. Because in God's vision, the uniting of bodies was intended to be embedded within the uniting of lives and covenant together forever. So the gospel moves us from just rule keeping to the greater reality of image bearing, representing and bearing the image of God to one another. A second exhortation or encouragement is that we need to be a community of radical grace. We need to be a community of radical grace. I know there are some of you right now who feel some guilt. You're feeling guilt or shame. You're feeling weight about your past and the things you've done. I talked with one friend this week who said, I felt like God hated me for 10 years because of stuff in my past. And the gospel says, no, you are loved by God. Like Christ loved you so much, he went to the cross to be with you forever. If you want to know how much Christ loved you, look at the cross. He went to hell and back to be with you forever. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus goes after a spouse with a checkered past. That's good news for you and I because we've all got checkered past. Jesus is for you. He has gone to lay down his life for you. What makes, this, what makes sex so sacred is the story that it points to, the reality it points to, and what it points to is a Christ who has come to be with you. He's been willing to go all the way to be with you forever. So we need to be a community of radical grace. I don't want us to be a legalistic community where we feel like we have to hide the stuff that we're struggling with, the, the things that we've done in the shadows and feel like that's too shameful for other people to know. You heard earlier in Mark's story, it was when he brought those things out into the open, he experienced the freedom of going, oh, you too? And we can be in this together? And, and, and I, I can step out of the shadows and into the light, out of the place where it has this grip and control on me and into the space where Christ's freedom amongst his people 
is loosening the grip of sin in our lives. We need to be a community of radical grace. I know there are some of you as well for whom uh, there are wounds, right? Not because of ways that you've sinned, but ways that you've been sinned against. We talk about sex. I know that there are realities in some of our stories here today where you've experienced abuse, you've experienced trauma, you've experienced harassment. This could be a source and an area of, of pain for you. And you need to know that that was not your fault and that Jesus is with you and that he's for you. And that his presence can bring healing and restoration over time. I know there are some of us in this room too as well where you're single and uh, you don't want to be. Maybe some of you are single and you want to be, that's fine, but there's some who are single and, and don't want to be. And, and you can kind of go, well, man, this is beautiful reality, but I, and I want that, but what if I don't have that? What if God hasn't brought that person in? And I do believe another thing that we need here is a community, not only be a community of radical grace, but a community that has a higher exalted vision of singleness as well. Look at the reality of the gospel. Jesus was single, Paul was single, but if you're single, you're in good company, right? And here's what I love about the gospel is that Jesus gave up sex and marriage on a horizontal level so he could give his life for what it represents on a vertical level, union with you, his people, right? And that means that you can have the reality without the sign. You get the movie without the sneak preview, right? Like, like you get union with Christ, union with the very life and presence of God, life in his kingdom, a new life coming through you into God's world. You can press into that reality even without the sign. But together in all this, we hold sex sacred. And so the call I would have for us in all this is that we need to pursue sexual faithfulness. I would ask for all of us this morning, are you defacing the image? Because if you are, that's like taking a bulldozer to the Grand Canyon. And yet, the beauty is that when we give our lives to live sexually faithful to Christ, it may run against the grain of culture, but it runs with the grain of creation. It runs with the grain of the universe. It runs with the grain of God's heartbeat for the world. It runs with the grain of where our destiny is headed the union of Christ with his church forever. So I want to encourage you this morning to live sexually faithful and to do so motivated, not just by whatever, motivated by the glory and grandeur of who God is and what God has done of the world that we live in and of the world that's coming. The invitation this morning is we come to the table come to Jesus, who is diversity in unity. Jesus, who is where heaven and earth meet and are joined together forever. Jesus, who is like more beautiful than the sunset. His presence is more life-giving than when soil and water come together. Jesus is the reality the sign points to. So as we come to the table today, we come to Jesus. We come to the bread, a sign of his body broken. We come to the blood, the wine, a sign of his blood shed. And so as you come to the table this morning, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're saying, Jesus, I, I want to follow you. This table is for you. As we come, we come to the groom who laid down his life for his bride. We could be joined in union with him forever.
Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for God, the glory of the structure of creation, God, the reality of the world that we inhabit, Lord. It is majestic. The coast, the sunset, the, the mountaintop, God, we live in a world and that you have filled with reflections of your glory, God. We worship you and give you praise, and God, that you have made us as a part of that, a window into that structure, that reality. God, we want to honor that. We want to hold that as sacred. We want to live in alignment with the ways that you've called us as your people to live. And God, I thank you for just the realities, the greater realities of diversity and union, God, the hope of the gospel for our world, Lord. And God, I want to pray as your people that, that, that we would hold sex as sacred, God. We want to live sexually faithful to you. I, I, God, I want to create some space right now and just, uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister in the room. I recognize and know there are, are those of us right now who might be feeling guilt or shame over things we've done in our past, but you would minister the radicalness of your grace. God, I believe there are those with wounds right now from things that have been done to them, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister your presence with them and for them. God, there are those maybe that are, are living out of alignment with the, the grain of the universe and the nature of your heart for us, Lord, and I, I pray for conviction, God, right now. And so I just want to create some space right now, Lord, in silence, and just ask that you would Holy Spirit, minister to your people as we reflect and leave ourselves open before you.